Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 74. I'm your host, Derek Moore, and today I have my semi-permanent quasi-co-host, Jay Pestercelli, CEO of Zega Financial. How are you doing today, Jay? Great, Derek. Great to be here again. Yeah. Uh, I might have to start paying you at some point if you keep coming on. I don't know. You're, yeah, just a you're... percentage of what you make. That's that's it. Oh, wait. Percentage of zero, <laughs> zero. Got it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I've thought about, uh, like, you know, I don't know if it would work, but just starting to do like an ad read for Spotify, even though I'm not sponsored, and to just contact them and say like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm reading your ads. Because, um, uh, you know, you've heard those ads on other podcasts. So I don't know if that will work or not. So today, um, good topic for us, volatility, the fix, um, what happens you know, why options are a little bit dangerous, especially for the novice around earnings. And, you know, I thought everybody sort of probably is familiar with the VIX index. And there's things that people think are, you know, the VIX is what it is. It's not some things, it's not other things. Um, so let's start there. Uh, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about how it's been elevated and more elevated than we've seen since 2008. So Jay, Talking about the VIX, what is it? What is it not? Yeah, um, you know, a lot of people call the VIX the fear index. We've heard that before. Um, and it, I guess if you had to come up with a way of actually measuring the emotional disposition of the market, maybe the, the, the VIX is a way to do that, right? Because what it really reflects is how much investors are willing to pay for speculation. And so what do I mean by that? Um, the VIX in, technically is a mathematical equation that uh, takes a look at the expected volatility over the next 30 days. And it is a forward-looking vehicle. Um, it is based off of actually the prices uh, right out of the option chain of the S&P 500. So you can't trade the VIX uh, directly. You can't own the VIX directly. Um, it is a mathematical equation. Um, but not so much like the S&P 500 or the Dow are a mathematical equation. This actually you know, has no assets uh, as the underlying uh, index. It is a mathematical equation that represents the implied volatility of the market over the next 30 days. And that may sound uh, uh, kind of like a nerdy thing, but when, when, you, when you, you look at what options really represent, right, the amount somebody's willing to pay for a put or a call um, is representative of uh, uh, you know the amount of speculation an investor is willing to take. So what do I mean by that? So if you're willing to pay you know five dollars, I'm going to make this random uh, point up. You're willing to pay five dollars for a ten percent move in a stock uh, or the index. Um, that's one thing. Or if you're willing to pay ten dollars for that same amount of a move over the same time period, you've just said you're more speculative. You're willing to pay more for that movement. Now that movement can be up or down. The VIX isn't necessarily a directional indicator. It is an assessment of the premium in the options market. So I know I just, that was probably a little detailed, uh, uh, Derek, and there's probably one or two clarifying points you'd like me to make on that. But generally speaking, it's a mathematical equation that represents the implied volatility over the next 30 days. Yeah. And as you said, I mean, the higher it is, the more people are willing to pay up Normally for protection. I mean, normally we don't see the VIX rise as markets are rising. And I think you made an important point too, is that you can't trade this. And part of the reason why we call it the spot fix 
when the VIX spikes, uh, typically after, you know, the market event, it comes back down. And so there would be, if you could trade it, if you could actually short it, like you would, you could short and hold this because you know it's a reversion to mean at the sometime. Uh, you cannot trade it. As you said, you see it on CNBC. It's really what's the volatility right now. Uh, but people do trade futures on it, which gets complicated because you've got weekly expirations, monthly expirations. And then here's a, a pro tip for, for the, the beginning traders out there who you and I always say, you know, start just with funds or, uh, you know, don't start with options. You'll, you'll probably, uh, lose money really quickly, but the option chain that you see is not the options on the VIX that you see on TV. It's actually the options on the futures. So this gets a little bit complicated. Um, but no, I, I, I think that's a good description of it. Um, but I also think that, uh, you know, you mentioned it's, it's referred to as the fear index, um, you know, I usually you see a spike in VIX after market drawdowns. And, you know, one of the things that we've seen recently is I don't think we, you know, the elevated VIX that we're seeing right now, it hasn't been this sustained since probably, right? I mean, 2008, remember 2008, it was like, oh, it's still over 30. Oh, it's still over 40. And it was just there for a while. Yeah. I, um, it's, so it's, you, you just brought up two interesting points. Um, the first is the 30 number, right, Derek? You and I, a long time ago, have always talked about the statistical relevance of 30 on the VIX, right? There was a study that was done, and then you and I have been, gosh, is at this point now it's been 14 years you and I have been trading the VIX together. I know we were trading it independently. But when you see that VIX pop over 30, there is a sustained level for at least a month, typically. Now, we are in a, a unique period right now, right? We popped over 30 um, I guess I could look at the exact date when we first popped over 30 during all of this. I guess it would have been uh, February 27th of this year. Um, we have dipped down one or two days, but it stays above 30 for at least 30 days once you get over it, right? I think we've continued to see that. Um, and so the sustained level of the VIX is not um, necessarily that odd. The thing that's odd about this one is the sustained level above 50. Now, we're not at 50 today. We haven't been above 50 uh, for a few months. But we spent 17 days over 50 on the VIX. And if you look at a chart of the VIX, 50 historically has been a level that it tops out at, right? It kind of, even if you get through 30, um, it usually goes up to 50. Well, it doesn't usually, but it can go up to 50. And, and that is typically a kind of a reversal range. That was not the case this time around. And I do believe, Derek, we stayed um, above 70 this time around with the, the COVID fear um, much longer than we did even in the 2008 Great Recession, right? That spike that we got um, in 08 was, was quick, dramatic, but not nearly as long uh, sustained. It was, it was not as uh, uh, high for as long as what we are seeing this time around. And... Uh, you know, I, th I think we could talk about what the implied volatility was of the VIX and what we actually experienced. Let's get to that point in a minute. But uh, the second thing you brought up was about um, options and futures, and you even touched on funds. So there are derivatives. The VIX itself is a derivative, right? It is an equation um, based off of the options on the S&P 500. So 
the VIX itself is kind of a second derivative, right? You've got the options, and then the derivative is their implied volatility. Well, now you've got um, futures and options based off of that derivative. That's your third derivative. And sometimes a lot of these funds that are ETFs or ETNs that hold things like VIX futures in them, um, then it's a whole nother derivative. And so when you look at uh, funds like the uh, uh, SVXY, right, the SVXY, which is an inverse, uh, which is an inverse of the volatility index futures, right? That one happens to not be leveled, uh, leveraged. There is a, a UVXY, which is leveraged to the upside. So all of these derivative products come out and they can get complicated. Um, we have seen some of these products get wiped out in a single day, right? TVIX got wiped out, wiped out in a single day when the VIX doubled uh, uh, in a single day, and it was a, an inverse volatility uh, index. And so when you're short something and it doubles, you went from whatever you had to zero, right? You lost 100% in a single day. So understanding the nature of these, it is they are not for the novice trader. They're certainly exciting to watch, and they certainly can be a vehicle used for speculative aspects uh, in the short term. But like you said, if you could short the VIX forever, it is a reversion to the mean trade, it'd be great. But there's actually no vehicle to do that. There's no way to get that kind of easy off. I'll just short it every time it's above 30 because I know it's going to go down below it at some point. Just not possible, right? You can't get that free lunch in the market. So um, there's always somebody you're trading against, and they're usually very, very sophisticated when it comes to the VIX. I remember that day, and, and I, I think I messaged you, and I was like, Jay, I think it's done. And you were like, why is it still trading at the price? And I'm like, I don't know who's buying this, but I think it's done. And, and what we're, I forget which one exactly, but a, as you said, if you're long VIX futures uh, or short VIX futures, and they were 25 and they go to 50, uh, I don't remember exactly what it was, um, the, the fund is you lose 100% of your money. And I remember seeing that. I'm like, I think it's done. And it was just, it was a weird thing. And it got sorted out in, as the aftermarket went on. And, and then, it, you know, the indicative price matched up with the market price. But yeah, I mean, that's, uh, and that's a good example too of that worked until it didn't work, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of people that thought they were brilliant because they were, you know, uh, trading these inverse volatility ETFs, which really is a, a trade on Contango. And now I've probably brought up a whole new, Topic, but essentially, you know, the uh, uh, speculation associated with the futures market, right? Hey, there's always a chance the VIX can go to 50, right? Well, that is expensive three or four months out, and eventually the futures have to mark to the spot VIX price, right? Because they are based on it. But there is a lot of speculation in the future itself. And so, you know, most months the VIX does not go to where it's speculated the future say it can go, right? Most months, the speculation turns out to be just that, speculation. And, you know, especially after 2017, which was the least volatile year uh, since the since they started tracking volatility, right? I mean, I don't think we had, uh, uh, you know, we had, we had a record number of days below 10 on the VIX. Um, you know, the VIX never got very high. It was just a really, really low volatile year. And uh, anybody that thought they were brilliant for playing the short, the short VIXs said, well, I should just do more and more of this. Well, come February of 2018, the VIX doubled in a day and really put a lot of those funds right out of business. That was a frustrating year, too, for those getting long volatility, meaning long, you know, a product or an option or a future that was 
wanted the VIX to go up because they're like, oh, it's historically low. I mean, we saw some futures closes. I think there was one below 10, which is absolutely historic in the VIX. And when we saw, when you see the VIX under 10, and people said, well, it's a reversion to the mean, so I should buy. And they kept losing money. It was a very, you know, the VIX can frustrate a lot of people, Jay. Uh, it can. It can for sure. You brought up something, and I, I think we'll spend uh, a, a little bit of time on this without going, you know, it's, it's always a tough topic because you don't want to lose everybody and you don't want to go too far into the, you know, the weeds on it. But you brought up the fact that, and you and I were tracking this, we kept a spreadsheet for a while that what the VIX was implying with its its volatility levels, the market was actually more volatile than the VIX predicted. And I know it, you brought it up in, in passing. We'll get to it now. It's the, the realized versus the implied. Uh, it got a little out of whack for a while. Yeah, um, a, a, a lot of out of whack, right? So yeah, <laughs> um, we put out uh, a blog post. You did the research on this, and you could probably even link to this uh, from a few months ago. But essentially, it was saying, hey, even though the VIX is at 80, um, it's, what we're actually realizing, remember, the VIX is a future-looking vehicle, so it's predictive in nature. It was predicting, um, you know, at 80, it's predicting, you know, 5% daily moves. What we actually experienced were much more. So this is the um, realized volatility or historical volatility or standard deviation, however you want to call it, what actually happened was much worse than what the VIX was predicting. So even though the VIX was elevated at very high levels for a sustained amount of time, it still wasn't enough for what the market actually experienced. And so, you know, the VIX is not always right, right? What option traders are willing to pay for speculation, uh, which is the thing that defines the math behind the VIX, um, does not necessarily mean that is 100% right. Plenty of times it's not right. Yeah, I mean, it, I thought it was fascinating. We were seeing those those 10% moves daily and it was like, oh, the it's it's as you said, I mean, a VIX of uh, was saying 5% and we're getting 10. And what that means is that if you're a seller of volatility, it, the market moved more than you were being compensated for. Uh, and even if you were a buyer of volatility, you're probably thinking there's no way the market's going to move more than that. And it did. So it was, as you said, it got dislocated uh, typically over the long run. And Jay, you've done some work on this, uh, the implied volatility. What, what the market is predicting the volatility to be is typically overstated, meaning it's, it's predicting more volatility that's actually realized. Yeah, and, and a lot has to do with uh, the fact that there are market participants that are going to regularly buy protection in their portfolios, right? We've talked a lot about hedging. Um, when you're hedging, you are buying volatility in one way or another, right? So if your you know, investment strategy is to be low in the market but protected, you're forced uh, to have on something that uh, reflects more volatility than what the market is actually uh, experience to that time. And so the constant buying of puts, and, and this is why, uh, one of the reasons why, Derek, uh, you mentioned earlier that, you know, the VIX typically spikes when markets drop and markets drop quickly. So protection kicks in quickly. It's also, also the way the math works, right? As the market moves to put those previously out of the money options to be closer to in the money, it, it, it just naturally inflates the VIX. You know, every time the VIX um, prints a different price, it doesn't mean someone actually went and traded an option at that very second. It does mean, though, that the underlying price of the S&P has moved 
And the way the math works, all of a sudden options are their volatility changes because they're more or less in the money, right? Based on the underlying movement of the S&P 500. And so all of these factors that go into um, uh, the pricing of the VIX tend to lead to spikes and drops in the market, but also your point you said a second ago, they are more predictive of volatility uh, than what actually happens. And normally the VIX is higher than what's actually been realized. Um, there are times that it predicts it correctly, but generally speaking, um, buyers of volatility are losers most months. You know, the other thing I think that's interesting is that we've had these sustained levels. We touched on that. January 2nd was the first trading day of the year. The VIX was 12.47. Right now it's 35.71. And, you know, look, the market's come off a little bit from, you know, its most recent highs. But it's interesting that, you know, we always say like the, the market's climbing a wall of worry. There's a lot of worry, you know, with the coronavirus. Um, you know, we have elections coming up in November and we, we have seen a little bit more volatility in, in the expiration closest to that. But I, I do think it's interesting that the VIX is this sustained, even though we're only, what, off, is it 8% now of the all-time high? Maybe 10%. Um, and I think the uh, the Qs, so the, the NASDAQ 100, um, they just made an all-time high. So it, it's just showing you that the market, even though the market has recovered, I don't want to say, you know, call it good here uh, and make any predictions, but on the backdrop of the recovery in the market, not the economy, VIX is still pretty elevated, which tells me that people are nervous, right? Well, it, it it's... Yes. And again, I'll go back to it. Just It tells you people are willing to pay more for a speculative move today than normal. Right. So that, by the way, that could be up. Right. There is uh, calls are more expensive now, too, as well as puts. It's not just the uh, protection that is more expensive and reflecting a higher VIX. By the way, incidentally, Derek, um, I know we're saying here you chuckled a little bit and said we're at 35 it, that is below the 100-day moving average for the VIX. The last 100 days, the VIX has averaged 37, right? So this has been a prolonged period of elevation, absolutely. Um, and again, it just means investors, traders, whatever, are uh, more inclined to pay additional premium for options. Um, I do want to correct myself. I said something before that the TVIX was, went to zero. It was the XIV. I'm sorry, I got that backwards. The XIV is the one that uh, uh, went under. All right, yeah. That's the one that I think I messaged you on. That's the one I was like, Jay, I think it's done. And you're like, really? <laughs> and, and by the way, I most mean, <laughs> of it happened in the after hours, right? The, or like leading right. up the last five minutes and then the 15 minutes after the market closed where uh, all the futures just had to cover their positions, right? And so there was a huge spike in the future after the market closed. And by the next morning, it was shut down, right? Credits was shut it down. Jay, how much, uh, I want to get to how implied volatility works, and I'll explain a little bit of inside baseball there. But there's been a lot of talk recently, um, you know, people going on CNBC, and I've seen more and more articles about the idea of, you know, what happens when someone goes out and buys a call option. So a, a simple call option, like you buy XYZ 100 strike call, it means you have the right to purchase 100 shares of XYZ. XYZ is a fake stock, by the way. And But the, the market maker on the other side of that trade who's selling you the call has to hedge. Do you want to just talk briefly about, you know, 
How does market maker hedging, does that play into anything here with the market and, and the volatility? Well, right. You got to remember that um, uh, the executing brokers, the floor, the electronic market, whoever's taking the other side uh, uh, of an individual's trade doesn't really want to have directional exposure, right? They want to make themselves neutral. And so what will happen is before you buy that call, right, the person on the other side has done the math that said, okay, if I want to get neutral against somebody else, and there's a lot of ways you could get neutral, right? Um, they're already looking at what that trade will cost them. And they're in the business of, uh, uh, of providing liquidity. So they have to make money somehow. How do they make money if they're neutral? They're, they already know that before I sell you this call and I am now short the call, my offsetting position, whether it's, you know, and let's just say it's long XYZ stock because there's not futures on individual stocks, you know, their offsetting position that they're going to take, by the way, they could do it with deltas or some other way, um, is going to already be pre-priced. And so, um, you know, the part of the reason why market makers will, and, and just I'll say market participants, I don't want to uh, uh, do a wide swath for just market makers, but all, mar- you know, market participants, liquidity providers, they're already calculating what's my cost for me to get neutral and can I make a profit on the net between what I sell to the to the to the street and what I have to buy to get myself neutral. And so they hold a book of offsetting positions right against your position. They don't normally they're not. Now, listen, hedge funds will take positions up directly against um, uh, individuals because they have a thesis. But generally speaking, market participants are looking to stay neutral. They don't want to take directional risk. And so they're looking for, you know, for lack of a better term, uh, they're looking for a VIC, right? They're looking to make a little bit on every one of their trades because they don't care which way the market goes. And that works its way into the pricing of the options, right? So there's some days where you go in, uh, the markets, you know, seems to be volatile one day and all the option prices are up. It's not just because the market seems volatile that day. It's also because it's more expensive to get neutral on the other side. Um, and so that, listen, that is a really inside baseball concept. I don't think it should play too much into the decision process of uh, if you have a thesis, if you're going to enter the market or not, you just have to realize it exists. Large institutions that are providing liquidity are pricing in uh, uh, an opposing trade so that, you know, at least they could make their money to provide you the chance to make your money. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a good, that's a good explanation. We'll sort of leave the, uh, the dealer gamma and, (laughs) People on Reddit buying, you know, low probability penny options, thinking they're going to force, you know, the market maker on Microsoft to to buy millions of shares. Let's leave that for another time. But that's there's a lot of confusion out there on the on that aspect. Let me talk about implied volatility, though. So you mentioned it, and uh, you mentioned also the idea that the market was implying a certain move. The realized moves were greater, especially during that end of February, March. Here's a little inside baseball, but I'll be quick about it. Okay, inside baseball means uh, let's get behind the numbers. There are 252 trading days in the year. The square root of 252 is 15.875. Why the heck am I telling you that? Well, implied volatility is, Jay, as you mentioned, what options traders are willing to pay. And if they think there's going to be a greater propensity for a, a more volatile market, or a greater move, um, the options premiums are going to increase to reflect that. 
And so to give you some numbers here, I gave you that square at a time. If what that means is if you have a stock that's implied volatility percentage is 30%, and that implies that they're on an annual basis, you, you'd expect a one standard deviation move to be, you know, up or down, you know, within 30%, right? So a 30% volatility, if you break that down to a single day, it's 30 divided by the 15.875. So your one standard deviation move is 1.89% on a given day. Okay. So hopefully that I'm keeping it relatively, you know, uncomplicated for now. The easy way to look at this too is traders on the floor used to round up that 15.875 and they called it the rule of 16. So if you had a, a stock that has an implied volatility of 16, it's easy math. 16 divided by 16 is one. So 1%. One standard deviation, one day implied move, right? Okay, easy enough. And then if you want to look at, you know, hey, over the next 49 trading days, trading days, not calendar days. And most option trading platforms show calendar days. So uh, a little bit of a, a fine point there. But you would take the square root of 49. Why did I choose 49? Because it's seven, right? It's an easy square root. And so that same example with a 16 vol, um, 1% daily move, a 7% one standard deviation sort of cone over the next 49 days. And so I get a little bit, uh, you know, a little option geeky here, but um, that's that's sort of the, the back of the envelope um, math on this. And there's a lot of things that go into this. And, uh, but, you know, Jay, that's one of the things where, you know, sometimes people buy options and they're frustrated because they get the move they wanted, but then the option goes down. Uh, but around earnings, it's not uncommon for implied volatility. I've seen Netflix before earnings have a 300 implied volatility. You do the math there, the one standard deviation, one day move is almost 19%. So that's how each stock has implied volatility. In fact, Tesla, I kind of looked up and down the chain the different months, they're averaging somewhere between 65 and 80% implied volatility. It means the options are going to be pricey. So um, let me stop there. And, you know, I kind of laid the groundwork. Uh, but I think implied volatility is one of those. Every stock, every market, currencies have it. The VIX has its own, you know, volatility, the volatility. Um, but this is really where the market believes options should be priced based upon their expectations. And they could be right, they could be wrong. Yeah, I'll, g I'll give you an example. So I just uh, did a quick look at, uh, I look for a couple stocks that have a similar price, but a very different implied volatility. So let's use, uh, today happens to be a volatile day, but let's just use ConAgra, which, you know, is, a, you know, Dottie's food producing stock, right? Not particularly volatile. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not particularly exciting. Um, and let's compare it to, say, DraftKings which is you know, a high flyer this year, but still very, very volatile moving up. The implied volatility on Conagra is 42. And, and by the way, it's trading at $33. DraftKing trading at $34. The implied volatility is 105. And so what that tells you is you should expect a two and a half percent, sorry, two and a half times magnitude move every day between DraftKings and Conagra. And if you're just to look at, you know, I won't even go all that far out. Let's just say, you know, one month options, even just three week options at 
Uh, when you look at, say, the price of buying the 34 calls on DraftKings, which has the 105 uh, implied volatility, it costs $3.50, about 10% to buy that call one month out. Um, but then if you were to compare it to ConAgra, same expiration, one month out, um, those cost about a buck fifty. So, you know, the, the, which is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's about half of that. And so even though they are stocks with the same price, their difference in the price of those options uh, is a reflection of how volatile uh, the market uh, believes those two stocks will be. Now, clearly, that is also a result uh, of what has happened previously, right? Uh, you know, you don't just think all of a sudden, hey, out of the blue, you know, uh, DraftKings looks like it's going to be more volatile. It has been more volatile, right? And so some of historic volatility works its way into the implied volatility and what people are willing to pay for options. But again, it's, it's, it's a great example of when you have higher volatility, the actual prices of the options are very different. And, you know, you have to make a thesis here that, you know, you would think in order to break even on that DraftKings buy, right, you need uh, the stock to go up 10% in 21 days, right? We got three weeks till that expiration. Again, I just happened to pick that one. Um, you know, that's, that means you need the stock to be more volatile to move that way. And you don't need nearly as much of a move in a, in a less volatile stock like ConAgra. And so I, th- I, I like to use those kind of examples to help people understand, well, it's the same time. It's about the same price. What could cause the options to be so much more expensive? And it's the speculation. By the way, I quoted the calls, right? That's the upside move of those, uh, um, you know, of those of those stocks. I didn't even do the protective downside move of the stocks. And if you actually look deeper into those chains, you'll see you can see that uh, uh, you know they are just more expensive throughout. Right? Buying protection on DraftKings is very expensive because there's a good chance that the person on the other side is going to have to pay out on that because it's a much more volatile stock. So Derek, I think I I like to use those examples. Look at any two stocks of a similar price, look at their volatility. Um, There's an actual easy study on just about any chart that you have. Look up, you know, it's implied volatility. As long as there's options on the stock, you'll be able to see the volatility of that stock. Um, And then, you know, look at the difference in prices and options. And I think it's a really good reflection of how the VIX itself is calculated and how important implied volatility is in the pricing of options. You mentioned that on, on the DraftKings example, which of course is more volatile than, than uh, Conagra on an implied basis, right? Um, you mentioned that I think it needed to move about 10% um, just based upon the call price. But it's interesting because you know a lot of times, and, and you and I used to uh, be involved with the national education, trading education at TD Ameritrade, and, you know, we, we try and teach people like you're, <laughs> we used to joke around about, um, you know, to go from uh, never having done an option to your first option. It's probably protection based. It's not about speculation or it's about, you know, selling a covered call. But people would always be like, hey, what if I just bought a call and bought a put? Um, it's called a straddle, long straddle on, on a stock right before earnings. I know it's going to move. You know, you mentioned DraftKings over, I don't know how many, remember how many days it had to move 10% if you bought the call to break even. But if you also simultaneously bought the put, I mean, you're paying premium on each side. So now in order for you to break even, 
it's got to move by as much as it was or more than the expectation, um, you know, by expiration. So I used to say, look, I mean, I know it sounds simple, um, but they know that the stock is going to move and the options market is pricing that into the premiums. And it's actually one of the more, I used to say one of the more dangerous trades because you have to be right, but you have to be right on the magnitude, right? Yeah, no, that's right. Um, you know, options are not only a function of direction, but a function of time. You know, a lot of people forget that about options, and we could probably spend an entire podcast talking about how options price very differently early on in a trade versus closer to their expiration. But it's important to remember options are a function of price and time. And so when you add time, you add greater chance of movement. Um, and and in this case with DraftKings, by the way, their earnings aren't even in the next 21 days. ConAgra's are, by the way. But if you were to look out to where the earnings are for DraftKings all the way out to, say, uh, uh, August, if you, <laughs> um, it would cost you $10 on a $30 stock to buy that straddle. So you need pretty much a 33% move in the stock to break even between now and uh, uh, an expiration. And that's break even. That means you break even with a 30% move, either up or down, right? So it's, it just goes to show how expensive, you know, options can be um, uh, w- when you're around uh, earnings because there's a speculation. And there's a lot of times you'll see on TV, um, you'll hear uh, an options guy come on or a gal and say, look, the options are pricing in a 5% move or a 10% move. They're using things like implied volatility, standard deviation, and break even on the straddle to give you that math. Um, and so it's something to look at, you know, break even is an absolute, Hey, here's what I'm going to make at the time of expiration. Um, uh, when I, when I place this trade for some, for earnings that are coming out in just a handful of days, those are always the most expensive options, usually the most expensive options in the chain. Um, and so just be wary of that. And, you know, you said we, we liked it if people's first trades were protective ones with options, but we all know their first trades are usually speculative ones. Like, ooh, let me take a flyer on Apple rebounding or or Facebook finally selling off, right? Those kinds of trades are usually people's first experience with options. Unfortunately, they're speculative, which means they don't work all the time. They quite often don't work most of the time. Yeah. By the way, if Options Action uh, CNBC is listening, they should have you on uh, or... or- they can have me on too, one of us. Yeah, either one of us. But you remember, actually, it's kind of funny. I, I just thought of this. Um, do you remember when uh, it was during Fast Money, you and I were both at Ameritrade, and we would, you would be on air, but we, I would be in the background. We, we would, you would go on there, and it was always sort of the after hours report. I don't know if you remember doing those. Oh, yeah. It would be, yeah, so they would, you know, it was Guy Adami and uh, one of the Nigerian brothers and... Uh, uh, who was the the host? Was it Tyler? Tyler, I can't remember his name, but he he's not the host anymore. Anyway, but in the prep, like me and you and and, and Mick and there were other people, um, we would be looking at the you know the stocks with earnings in after hours, and we'd look at the option, we'd look at the implied volatility, and then we we'd actually go deeper. We could see the the time and sales, the trades, and we would be like, oh, they're doing the uh, the straddle at, at these strikes. But the math that we were just doing, you know, we explained about the square roots and obviously we had software. Like before you went on, that was the prep and you'd go and look, be like, look, I mean, this is the implied move. This is the, uh, uh, I don't know if you remember doing those, Jay. We, we probably did. You were on quite a bit for a while, right? 
Yeah, we probably did 20, 25 of those. And the original host was uh, Dylan Radigan. Dylan, that's it right. It was Dylan that's when right. I was first on. And then we did some with Melissa. I, I would say, uh, you know, those were interesting because um, they liked, there was so much activity um, from the Ameritrade client base after hours. We had a really good platform for trading after hours, individual stocks. Um, options only trade till 4.15 uh, uh, each day. But we would have some insight based on the activity leading into the earnings data um, that we would then talk about, like, hey, this is where the options were pricing this move. Uh, and then we would talk about where all the volume was and where all the trading was. But, yeah, no, those those were definitely interesting times. Uh, and I always appreciated the research you helped uh, put together for that. Uh, um, gosh, those are those are the days. Yeah. Well, I, and it was interesting dichotomy because you and then either Pete Nigerian or John Nigerian, of course, Dr. J., they would look at it from a different standpoint. They would look at volume versus open interest and the idea that, you know, if it, I'm making this up, but if the open, you know, the number of contracts that were open in positions was a thousand and all of a sudden you had 20,000 contracts, um, to them, that's one of the things that, that they would look at. But yeah, I remember that. And I remember, um, you know, we would see the volume and then we'd be like, okay, what are they doing here? And that's the interesting thing. I mean, options can be used, when people say, hey, there's a bunch of calls going out, those could be covered calls. Um, those could be calls to hedge a short position, you know, short, uh, hedge it going up. Those could be part of a spread. So, I mean, options can be used for any number of, you know, ways. And um, it takes a little little knowledge and, and experience to know what, what those are. Yeah, I, I would, um, let, let me bring it back to volatility for a second, uh, Derek, because I think there's one or two more points we want to bring up. But you, before we, you, you're right. We used to always say the options are, you know, can be the tea leaves for directional uh, bias on stocks, or at least the magnitude of a movement when it comes to stocks. Right? They are, uh, they are definitely linked. And sometimes being a good stock trader means you have to understand the options market because they're going to, you know, give you an idea of what's what's to come. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about. We talked about the challenges of uh, owning options and this concept of, you know. I've got this time decay and volatility that I have to offset, right? So in that ConAgra and the uh, DraftKings example I gave, um, you know, when you need that much of a movement, what do you do, right? Let's say you want to use options. There are ways to remove volatility from the equation. And I don't want to get too complicated on the actual, you know, uh, tactics themselves, but, you know, when you're buying calls or buying puts, you're, you know, buying volatility, Right. Doesn't mean doesn't matter which direction it is when you're a buyer of an option, you're buying volatility. Um, so uh, the flip side of that is if you could be a seller of options, you are selling volatility. And so um, you can pair those two concepts up and eliminate the trouble of offsetting long volatility. So let's go back to. So what do I mean by that? Um there are ways to synthetically create exposure to stock. Now, I know the second I say the word synthetic, now it's either you have uh, visions of a cyborg and sci-fi movies in your head or some complicated uh, math calculation. It's neither of those. All it is is uh, it's, it's synthetic means just another way of creating your long exposure. And believe it or not, maybe not everybody knows this, when you buy a call and sell a put, at the same strike price, you are synthetically creating stock exposure, right? You're going to make money as the market goes up in your long call because it's going to appreciate in value. 
and all the time value that you lose in that appreciation of the long call, you're earning in that short put, giving it back to you. And so one of the ways to combat high volatility of uh, of a stock, but you want to use options because of, you know, it's a more efficient way of using money and capital and those types of things, um, or you want to create some leverage, but you don't want to deal with this leverage time decay issue, you can uh, sell vol at the same time you're buying it. You want to expand on that? Yeah, no, I think that's right. And it's uh, because you're taking in volatility, um, you know, you're, the, the idea when you sell options, it's you're holding an ice cube, right? Um, when you buy options, you're holding an ice cube, you know, the time value melts away. And so as you point out, um, if you're holding ice cubes, uh, somebody else, when you sell an option, well, they're holding ice cubes. So you're getting sort of this equidistant melt to, you know, it might not be a dollar for dollar, but, um, but yeah, and it also limits, it can limit your risk. Um, you know, on, on the short side, the only thing I'll say is if, if they're not, index options, um, and I, I won't even get into this, but you could be assigned early if, if the lower leg is the, the short leg, but we'll hold that for another. Yeah, listen, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of management that goes into any option position, quite frankly, um, right? And that is just one of the, the pieces, uh, uh, you're right, that has to be considered. Um, but yes, there's a lot to, be, to watch out when you're short options, uh, because now you're no longer the one in control of the decisions. You're the one who's uh, uh, you know, at the, uh, you're the one who's made the commitment to the holder of the long option on the other side. Um, but you know, and I'll, I'll give a quick example on that drafting example. When I said before that, if you wanted to buy the long call, it was, you know, $3 and 50 cents on a $35 stock. Well, guess what? The put is selling for $3 and 50 cents. And so with very little cash outlay, um, you can end up creating a synthetic long position and you don't have to worry about things like time, uh, decay burning you. Now, listen, you are absolutely, you know, in a directional bias. It's just the same as holding the long stock. And, you know, we, I always talk about, you always talk about you know, having uh, some sort of protection on for those positions is important. We'd recommend you collar it up, but that's a, that's, that's going down another path of actual position management. But I think it's, a, it's just important to realize that um, time decay is not always the enemy. Volatility decay is not always the enemy. Heck, there's lots of times we run multiple strategies that, um, make all of the returns based off of the capture of volatility decaying over time, right? And so, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, the point that I'm bringing up really is with options, it's not just the directional movement of the underlying, it's things like uh, time, it's things like price that matter. Yeah, and I think it's it's also, uh, uh, you know, we, we hedge, and I'll link to an episode we did on, you know, how we hedge and use that. But, you know, it's, it's interesting, like if, if you're looking to hedge the market um, and offset the, the volatility cost, like a lot of times you don't need to be hedged to zero, right? So like the market is, uh, you know, 3,000, it's a little over 3,000. Like you're probably not worried about the market going to 500. You might be worried about it going, you know, from 3,000 to 2,000. So you don't have to be hedged to zero and sell, selling other volatility is, is an offset. Um, so I'll definitely link to that. One, one thing, um, uh, before we wrap up too, it's interesting, Jay, I think you and I talked a little bit about inflation last week. Um, and I'll link to last week, two weeks ago, and I'll link to that episode. Um, we got into, you know, inflation and interest rates and any number of things. Uh, but it is interesting. I, I feel like we were on the precipice because, uh, professor Jeremy Siegel, 
went on Barry Ritholtz's uh, Masters in Business uh, Bloomberg podcast. And he, he's not calling for massive inflation, but I, I did think it was an interesting viewpoint from him because of all the stimulus went into what's called the M1 money supply. You can Google that. Uh, much more so than in 2008, his thesis is that um, not massive inflation, but over the next couple of years, you know, we might see three, four, and I think he even said, you know, 5%. He's not calling it, you know, saying long run massive inflation. Uh, but I, I do think it's an interesting viewpoint um, that has implications for the options market. Uh, I'll link to that episode too. But Jay, I feel like we were early on that. Maybe. I don't know. Well, you know, that's, that, I'm not surprised, Derek. You're always on top of it. Uh, <laughs> that's great. Um, you know, uh, uh, I'll bring it back a little to volatility. I just took a look at the volatility of the TIP ETF, TIP, uh, uh, and it's really, really low. It's like a six, right, going out a year. So um, it is interesting. Uh, the market isn't predicting a lot of inflation uh, as represented by the, the, the TIP ETF, but uh, it's uh, but it's there, right? There's some there, right? It does. It is predicting some movement uh, over the next year in that metric. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right, Jay. Uh, any any predictions for the week? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Volatility will not go away. How's that sound? I mean, I listen. If I could just on this topic, right? I mean, we're good. This is an interesting year, obviously. Um, you and I have been through, you know, a handful of these, whether it was, you know, 2000, 2001, whether it was 07, 08, and now we've got 2020. You know, one of the things about volatility is um, uh, you have to remember that uh, it comes and it goes. Um, we will be in an elevated, volatile, an elevated volatility environment for a little while here. Uh, we have this thing called a presidential election that's coming up that will also uh, not reduce volatility uh, anytime soon. And so, you know, you know, adjusting your strategies based off of, you know, the kind of environment you're in is probably pretty important. Um, and you could look at volatility, you know, more than 30 days out, like the VIX, you can look in the option chain um, and just see what the market is predicting the volatility will be based on how expensive longer dated options are. So, you know, use, use options and use volatility as uh, as not just the short-term fear trade or short-term indicator and, uh, uh, you know, and maybe some people will use it as a contrarian indicator when VIX gets too high, it's time to buy. But, you know, you could use it as for longer-term uh, uh, positions in your portfolio and even just thinking longer-term, hey, is, is vol going to drop or is it going to, is it going to spike uh, going out? So a lot of uses for the, for the, for the volatility uh, metric. Next week, Jay will be back talking about dealer gamma, gamma acceleration. No, no, I'm kidding. Only if you bring up Z-score. Z- <laughs> I'm going to get you to talk about gamma at some point. Jay, thanks again for coming on and uh, appreciate the time. Thanks, Derek. All right. See you, everyone.